Hope you can go ahead and read. This verse today is in Habakkuk. You'll turn to Habakkuk chapter 1. We'll be reading 1 through 11. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Thank you. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. There, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to de devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They, capt they gather captives like sands. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. The word of God, you may be seated. Take that with you, that'd be great. So we are starting a new series today in Habakkuk. And before you say Gesundheit, um, he is a, oh, that's right, offering. Wow, we had a lot of great things this morning. I almost forgot. Sorry, um, let's do offering right now. I'm going to go ahead and pray over the offering, and then um, board members, if you would distribute the plates. Um, I always want to say when we do offering, thank you for your, um, for your generosity, for your faithfulness in giving. Um, I'm just always amazed as your pastor at your faithfulness. Let's go ahead and pray, and then board members, if you distribute the plates. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the good things in our life, for all good things come from the Father of the heavenly lights. Thank you for the finances that you give to us, whether it's through being healthy enough to work or whatever other means. Lord God, what we give back to you is just simply a small portion, but really what it is is a symbol that you own it all, that all provision comes from you. So with that, Lord God, it is another form of worship we give to you today what you've required from us. And we do so gladfully with joy. To you be the honor, glory, and power. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. I was like so excited about like our youth doing worship that I totally... You guys did a good job. I want to say that again. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's so great to see the next generation start taking on the reins of ministry in the church. Because one day they will be, or we won't have churches. So, really appreciate that. So, um, as I said before, we are starting a new series in Habakkuk. 
And before you say Gesundheit, that's the name of one of the, uh, one of the minor prophet books in the Old Testament. Um, um, here we go. Um, we, so we're starting this new series. It is called The Minor Prophets, not because their message was minor in comparison to others, but minor just in the size of the book. For instance, Habakkuk is only three chapters long, so it should only take, it should only take me, you know, a half a year, two, three years to finish it. The book of Habakkuk tells us to how to have an unshakable hope an unshakable joy, an unshakable praise. At the end of this book, nothing will change, but the prophet's attitude, his heart, will. This book itself is going to show us how a person can go from despair to praise, from doubt to shout, without the situation actually changes. Many times our situation isn't going to change. That's an unfortunate reality that's just, it's just a fact. Sometimes the, 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 the uh, situation doesn't change. But where, do our, where, do, where does our heart go? There are times where Christ said, Peace, be still to the wind and the waves, and they were still. But there was other times where he just told his disciples, I'm not a ghost. And his disciples said, Hey, if you're, if you're the Lord, tell me, to, tell me to walk out on the water. And he told him, Come to me. Sometimes God calms the wind and the waves, and sometimes he tells us to get out of the boat and walk on them. Look at Jesus who prayed to his father that the cup would pass from him. The cup did not pass, but he was strengthened in his flesh to endure, the cro- to endure the cup, the cross. Sometimes he calms the storm and sometimes he calms and strengthens his child. For multiple weeks, we've been going through the book of um, Jonah. And after that, during Holy Week, we looked at what God had taught his prophet during the book of Jonah, and we applied that to Holy Week. Very justified to do that because Jesus told, he, Jesus told people when they asked him for a sign that no sign would be given them except the sign of Jonah. That as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, the Son of Man would be in the earth for three days. So that's what we went through. And now we are in Habakkuk. And I was wondering where, where the Lord was taking me with this. And there is, a, there is a connection between Jonah and Thomas in Habakkuk. Habakkuk is somewhat concerned, uh, is connected, somewhat connected to both Jonah and Thomas. In one way is that Jonah and Habakkuk are Old Testament prophets. More than this, they are prophets of different kingdoms. During that time, Israel split into two parts. The northern kingdom is known as Israel in our Bibles, also as Ephraim. The southern kingdom is Judah. And the northern kingdom always had evil kings. They were the first to be conquered. The southern kingdom of Judah had a few righteous kings, but eventually they too fell. The northern kingdom would be conquered by a kingdom named uh, Assyria, whose capital city was Nineveh, which Jonah was sent to. The southern kingdom will be conquered by a nation called Babylon. They, they do what is wicked in the eyes of the Lord, and that is what Habakkuk's complaint is. The reason why Judah is also conquered is that they continually did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And in chapter 1 of Habakkuk, that is Habakkuk's complaint, the prophet's complaint. Judah, perhaps with, within Habakkuk's own lifetime, will be crushed completely by the Babylonians. Habakkuk is like Thomas as well in that he is known for his doubt. When I was doing this, the Lord led me to Habakkuk, and I was just 
doing some some diff some different research, I came across this quote by the Reverend uh, um, J. Vernon McGee. Many of you maybe remember him and his broadcasts. He said, "I call I call him the doubting Thomas of the Old Testament." which is a bit of an acronistic in that maybe Thomas should have been called the Habakkuk of the New Testament. But let me go on here. I call him the doubting Thomas of the Old Testament because he had a question mark for a brain. His book is really unusual. It's not a prophecy in the strict sense of the term. It is somewhat like the book of Jonah in that Habakkuk, Habakkuk told of his own experience with God his questions to God, and God's answers. Matthew Henry, when commenting on Judah's eventual destruction, he uses this metaphor in many different places as well. But he says, the righteous God often pays sinners in their own coin. What that means is that often in the scriptures, what God will do is somebody who's sinning against him, he'll let them have at it, and they'll be destroyed by their own sin. A person who... A person who sows to sexual promiscuity, from that, from that desire, from that God receives disease and death and so many other curses upon their life. And God has to do nothing other than not protect them from their own consequences of their own choices. The person who lives for violence, we are told by Christ himself that the man who lives by the sword will die by the sword. You will see in Habakkuk's question and God's answer that God will pay Judah back using their own currency. The oracles of God, verse 1, starts off, um, starts off by saying the oracle. That word may seem weird to you. Maybe you're wondering, is that a mistranslation, the oracle? That sounds like something out of Greek mythology. What is going on with this oracle business? Um, verse 1 begins with the oracle. If you're not familiar with the word, you might wonder if it's a mistranslation. It's not. It's how prophecies were given in the Old Testament. Romans 3.2 will mention the benefits of being a Jew is that they had the oracles of God. For the prophet, they were told by God, uh, God's word, in many times and in various ways. That's what Hebrew tells us in Hebrews chapter 1. But the way they expressed the word of God was in two forms. They would give the oracle of God. That would be the message. And they would give it in two forms, an oracle of woe or an oracle, or an oracle of weal. Weal means blessing. Woe, obviously, we know that's a curse. When Jesus Christ was on this earth in the flesh, he spoke in prophetic language when he would say the beatitude, blessed are those. And he also spoke as a prophet when he said, woe to you. It's not just simply old-timey speak. He was taking on the very language of a prophet because he is our final prophet as he is our priest and our king. In Revelation 19.10, it unveils, you know, Revelation in some traditions is called apocalypse. And we tend to see that as end of the world, but what it literally means is an unveiling. And that Revelation unveils for us the very core of what prophecy is. Sometimes we see prophecy as kind of Miss Cleo in the 90s. She'll tell you everything you want to know as fortune telling or as some kind of thing of like, what's my lucky numbers? But prophecy is so much more. It is, it is, it is beyond the very concept of that because in Revelation 19.10, the angel tells the revelator that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus Christ. In every godly prophecy that's ever been given, there is a thread connected connecting it to the very heart of God in Jesus Christ. 
All of it is meant for this one purpose, to make us love Jesus more. When it comes to prophecies, even prophecies of woe, the end result should be that I love Jesus more. Jonah and the Gospels are a narrative, what we've been going over so many weeks. This, however, is a poem, a poem in form of a dialogue. It's like, we, it's like we're a fly on the wall while God is speaking to his prophet. It's a book written in a historical context, but it is for you. It will use figurative language, but it is direct in its meaning. It is a poem. It is, in fact, a song of woe. We don't have many songs like this. We never really have in church tradition, but maybe we should. And somebody pick out, somebody make a catchy song that's like, if we don't stop this, we're all going to die. <laughs> I'm, not really, I'm not really good at writing music, but I mean, Josh, get on it. Um, at the end of Habakkuk, we find out, to the, to, um, at the very last verse, we find out this was a song. When, we, when it comes to the points in this chapter, in this first dialogue, so the structure of Habakkuk is question, answer, question, answer. And in this very first chapter, this very first dialogue, the points of it are pretty easy, and all of your section titles probably say the same. Habakkuk's complaint or question, and the Lord answers. So let's go over Habakkuk's question and the Lord's answer. My first point right here is Habakkuk's question, verses 1 through 4. One thing I want to point about Habakkuk is that he was burdened to pray. In certain parts of his prayer, he's somewhat out of line. But he does, some, he does so from a genuine heart, from a passion. He is burdened. He sees in his own country among the people who say that they're the people of God and they are living for sin. And he is disturbed in his spirit. When was the last time we were disturbed in spirit? In preaching on, on preaching on Nehemiah, David Wilkerson said that God will find a man and he will fill him with agony and that is the man he will use for change. But so often we dull ourselves with so many things that the, that the crimes of our nation, the crimes, the, the utter indignity heaped upon our Lord mean nothing to us. So we don't pray. We're not burdened. Habakkuk, he is burdened terribly that it's in the middle of his burdened prayer that God speaks to him. Sometimes we're wondering, why doesn't God speak to me? How come when I read the scriptures, they don't seem to mean anything to me? Well, have a burdened prayer life and you will hear from the Lord. The anger that, that, uh, that Habakkuk has here, it's not justified, but it is honest. My apologies, my notes seem to be out of order here. Here we go. Um, Habakkuk's complaint starts off with a question. We start off this book with a prayer from the prophet. If you were to paraphrase this, it would be, why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? Or if we were to simplify it even more, we would have one question. It would be, God, don't you care? In verse 2, in verse 1, in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? How long should I cry for help? The prophet's prayer was one about injustice he saw all around him. Why doesn't God punish these people? One of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, said this, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just 
and that his justice cannot sleep forever. Habakkuk's prayer, on the other hand, would have been more like, wake up, start doing the judging. In that a, in that a person might see, in, in Habakkuk's prayer, we might even see a hint of pride in that, does Habakkuk ever wonder, what about me? What about me and mine? Which, if God is splitting up the world into righteous and unrighteous, where, where are those and those I love? Where do they fit? God will clarify that for him. And after God's answer, Habakkuk will be like, hold on for a second. His prayer in verses 1 through 4 is, let him have it. Bring down the hammer of your justice. And then his prayer in his second complaint is, let's hold on right here. His, his prayer is more like, wake up. In verse 2, the very beginning of it, he says, how long? And that's why I labeled this, how long? Have you ever had prayers like that, that you've prayed for so long? How long? This vernacular is used in so many other prayers of lament in the scriptures. In Psalm 13, in Jeremiah 12, 4, also Zechariah 1, 12, and several others. This, this phrase, how long? You know why? Because life is a marathon, it's not a sprint. Life is a marathon, it's not a sprint. And in the middle of the marathon, when your electrolytes are, are waning and you don't know how to go on, that is when hope feels like it dies, but hope hasn't died. It just feels that way. So Habakkuk says, he begins his prayer with how long, because he's so frustrated praying the same prayer and never seeing any movement on this. And we all probably can sympathize with that. Because once again, life is a marathon, it's not a sprint. And it's why, it's why all the sequels to classic Disney movies go straight to video, because nobody cares what happens after Happily Ever After. We just want to pretend that they never had any problems. Stop writing fan fiction about, you know, Beauty and the Beast not getting along after their wedding. Nobody cares. Habakkuk, he is frustrated. He is coming from a place of hurt. He's coming from a place of he sees injustice all day long, and it just never seems to get better. But that is why patience, it's not so much a virtue, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Waiting in prayer, patience over something you want so bad. He even has the audacity to say to God, you will not hear, but God will respond back to him that he has heard and he is answering. In the second part of verse two, we have the beginning of the complaint. He says, cry to you justice. Cry to you violence, sorry. Cry to you violence. The prophet is saying, I tell you about the violence all around here. Why aren't you doing something about it? He sees people killing, hurting, maiming each other, and there doesn't seem to be any justice. Not in Israel, not in Judah. Why isn't God doing something about this? This is very interesting. I looked up the word violence in the Hebrew because this word is actually used six times in the book of Habakkuk, and that's far more than any one book like this. To see that many times, you'd have to go to all of the Psalms. So there's something about violence, violence, violence um, in here. The word in Hebrew for violence is Hamas. Hamas. Sounds very familiar. You know, who, who rules so much of Israel's inheritance today? Hamas. It is actually, it's not, they didn't choose the word violence from Hebrew. It's actually an acronym in the Arabic. But it's a homophone to the Hebrew word, meaning a word that sounds exactly like another word of the Hebrew word for violence, Hamas. In Habakkuk's day, Hamas was ruling Judah as well. There's an honesty in this prayer. 
I want you to take note that the prophet is honest in his prayer. I'm not saying that what he writes down here is good, but it's honest. In Jeremiah 6.14, the condemnation of the false prophets is this, is that they look at the wounds of Israel and Judah and they say it's not so bad. You want to know what a wicked doctor is? Not Brent Owen, but uh, a wicked doctor is somebody who sees you're dying and says you're fine. Don't worry. They see you bleeding out, but they don't want to have to go through the process of taking the tourniquet and hurting you worse to stop the bleeding. That's a wicked physician. And for a pastor, prophet, who whatever you want to call yourself, to come up on a Sunday morning and preach before God's people and say, hey, everything's fine. That's wickedness. Because not everything's fine. Not everything's fine within people who call themselves the church of God, who call themselves part of the church of Christ. I saw a video that, that drove me into a full-on rage this week. Because at a church, they decided, how about for a passion play, we have the Avengers up here and Tony Stark's going to be Jesus. And I wanted to throw up. He's holy. Some of you guys know that like, I'm a comic book fan that makes you like blush. I hate that garbage because my God is holy. He's holy. He's holy. That's blasphemy of the highest regard. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and you're going to make it a comic book? Are you kidding me? Not everything's fine. The, the, the big reason why those false prophets were condemned in Jeremiah is that they said the wound wasn't so bad. Well, the wound is, the wound is mortal. And here's the thing that Habakkuk knows. He knows that it is. He doesn't know to what extent, but he knows that God's justice cannot sleep forever. There's an honesty in this prayer. To Habakkuk's credit, he sees so much injustice in his own country, and he's angry. The direction of his anger, however, is not justified. God cares more about these issues than the prophet does, and God will prove that to him. You'll see that God is not upset, however, when his children are honest with him. He understands our weakness. It's not an excuse for our weakness, but he understands our weakness. It doesn't make our weakness noble, but it is the reality. So what I'd say to you in your prayer lives, be as honest as you possibly can, because he already knows. He already knows when you're frustrated. He already knows when you've been praying so long, it feels like there's blisters on your heart. That's something Rich Mullen said in one of his songs, Hold Me Jesus. But if we want to come to God, put on a face, put on a, put on a mask, you might be surprised that God is unwilling to deal with anything else until you take the mask off and allow him to work on those very difficult things. Verse 3, Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? You know what the prophet is saying here? It's, it's a bold statement. He's basically saying, are you blind? That is the accusation in verse 3. Doesn't God see what is happening here? The specific complaint is directed at how cruel and violent people are with each other over and over again, and they get away with it. He's upset because this is happening with his own people. Have you ever felt this way? Have you, I mean, to be honest, I've felt upset. I don't blame God. I think that gets in the way of healing. Whenever I look at social media, those who call themselves Christian in America seem to be either calling for blood or sex. 
So much of the dysfunction we see in America started at a church somewhere. And that's really the sad thing. There's an old saying that says, where the cult goes, there so goes the culture. Strides when it comes to accepting sins that God finds abhorrent start in churches, not in the wider culture. Because that is where the devil does his best work. Long before the Supreme Court made a ruling on homosexual marriage, you had entire denominations who were not allowing but blessing these things and saying they were holy. We often wonder, is God going to judge America? Let me read from you from Romans chapter 1, verse 28, about God's greatest judgment he will, he will put on a culture. Romans 1, 28 and since they, did not, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do the things, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceitfulness, and maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithfulness, heartless, ruthless. And he's basically describing America today. We are under judgment. We have leaders who do not abhor evil, they praise evil. Verse 4, justice. Here's the next problem the prophet sees. Justice is a joke in his land. The law is paralyzed. It's, It's there, just no one cares. It's not being enforced, so what good is it? People lie, steal, murder, commit adultery, make graven images. They are not punished for this, but they are praised for this. The justice that goes forth has been perverted. But look at the United States. We have professional fact-checkers who are nothing more than professional liars. People will lie and say, and say they lie, and they get rewarded for it. Abortion is so terrible that it's, it's almost impossible to come, to come to grips with how much willing blood is on our nation's hands. And you have people of supposed, who are supposedly Christians who not only tolerate it, they celebrate it, they praise it, they hashtag shout your abortion. Everything the prophet has against his nation, we should have against our nation and be grieved about it for our nation in the visible church as well. Worse yet, our injustice like theirs comes from the bench. Take, not, take note of that last part of his prayer, for the wicked surround the righteous. Of course, I see that every day when I log on to Twitter and I see whatever hate mob is, is targeting some, some brother who's online who has the courage to say what others won't say. What about God's answer? You know, what I want to say is that we are ministers of a better covenant than Habakkuk. We talked about that in Sunday school today. We're, we're part of a better covenant than the Old Testament because what was types and shadows them is reality for us. And the reality we know is that we're never beyond God's redemption. Even if we've started undergoing judgment, we're not beyond God's, beyond God's mercy. And there's no person whose sin is so great that God cannot forgive. In fact, God loves forgiving sinners. The worst kinds of sinners he loves forgiving, including you and me when we came to Christ because our sin was not fluffy and smelled great either. God's answer for Habakkuk surprises the prophet and it should surprise us as well. 
In fact, verse 5 is probably one of the verses that have been taken out of context more than almost any other verse. Verse 5 on its own. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. You know how most of the time I've seen that verse? Everyone probably knows already, right? As something that's good and like filled with hope. Look among the nations. I'm about to do a work in your day that you would not believe. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, he's going to do something. There's going to be revival. All these things. It's actually terrifying. It's not a happy verse. He is talking about, I'm going to do something. I'm going to destroy Judah in such a powerful way that people are going to talk about in hushed tones. This verse that often gets taken out of context, it's kind of, funnily, it's kind of funny how people take it out of context because they will pray that over themselves. They'll pray that over their church. Do you not pray that over this church? That's a curse. This isn't a happy verse. This is not a wheel prophecy. It's a woe prophecy. It's kind of scary. The prophet asked God, why are you not doing anything about all these people who are sinning in my country? And God responds back with, I am, and you won't believe what I'm going to do. People will speak in hushed tones about what he will do. It's a kind of good news, bad news thing. The good news is God's going to answer his prayer. The bad news is God's going to answer his prayer. When you pray, God, kill the evildoers, make sure that you and yours are not in the left column of that list. The destruction of Jerusalem fits the bill because physically it was a catastrophe, but spiritually it was much worse. It is like being unmade as a people. That is why when they came back to Jerusalem, the priest who comes there, Ezra, he writes First and Second Chronicles. If you, read your, if you read your Bible, if you're reading in order, you go First, Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and you're maybe wondering, okay, why did they just repeat themselves with some other details in here? There's a very specific reason why the priest did that. As they were coming back to Jerusalem, he wanted the people to know this. We were once a people. We were once a kingdom. And there will be a king of the line of David on that throne forever. It gives you chills of your spine, doesn't it? Having come from a state of utter destruction. You know, there are a lot of nations that went into exile who never came back out. We don't even have their names. They've been lost to history. But Israel comes back out. They're a nation today. That's a miracle, buddy. That is a miracle. So God, God warns, he tells his prophet, he is going to do something he will not believe. In verse 6, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Some of your translations will say Babylonians. It's the same difference. Um, the Chaldeans will actually be, become a word in the book of Daniel for those who are educated. It's like how we use the word Berean today. It was a tribe. Now, now the Babylonians are made out of many, many peoples together. They had many different cultures together, but at the core of them was the tribe of the Chaldeans. So then the Chaldeans are seen as something special, almost kind of ethnically. I guess the, the closest we would have to this is the, the German concept during World War II of the Aryan race. Um, so that would be their concept of that, of the Babylonian people. So when it says the Chaldeans, Babylonians, it is the same, th- same thing. It will be used as a way of talking about educated people in the time of Daniel. Um, God describes them in verse 6 here, that, that bitter and hasty nation. I have to admit, when I read the, when I read the, description, the description of, of the Babylonians as bitter and hasty, my first reaction was, 
I understand. I've worked, I worked at Target during Black Friday. That's a bad combination. If you work in retail, um, can I get an amen? Uh, verse 6 has a reference also to nation building of the ancient Near East. One thing I want to say, though, Babylonians were much worse than Black Friday shoppers. Like, they, they were not, like, storming up to Jerusalem being like, hey, Israel, we need to talk to your manager. Um, we didn't get what we wanted. Uh, no, they, they completely destroyed. Verse 6 has a reference to nation building in the ancient Near East, who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. This is unique with the nation of Assyria. How warfare most of the time before the nation of Assyria was conducted was you go into a place, you raid it, take what you want, you come back out. Maybe you seize portions of land, maybe you don't. Um, Basically, that's how you did. Now, all of a sudden, Assyria comes by, and they are nation-building, in which they annex entire nations. They take anybody who can do anything, and then they then scatter them to the wind. Assyria would just wipe everybody out. Babylon was actually seen as compassionate compared to the Assyrians. So to give you an idea of how brutal the Assyrians were. And so they would come in, and they would, basically, they would wipe everything out. They would take anybody that could do anything with them back to their nation, and then they would make them slave rulers. And the idea behind that is you're going to rebel against this nation, but the person who's directly over you is somebody from your nation of your royal, your royal dynasty. Um, in verse 6, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who marched through the breadth of the land to seize dwellings not their own. Verse 7, They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. In verse 6 and 7, this is what we see, that God uses sinners. God uses sinners. Did you know the unbelieving world is not off limits to our God? There's not something that's going on. God's like, I wish I could do something, but nobody's given me authority to do anything in that situation, so deal with it on your own. There is nothing, there's nothing all of human existence that God, who is so sovereign over everything, does not look at and say, mine. I didn't come up with that quote. I just can't remember who did, so anonymous. Um, there's nothing that God does not look up and say, mine, we make, our, we, make our, uh, we make our walls between church and state, and that's fine, but there's no wall that's so high that God does not say, that's easy to step over. You know, God sees what's happening in Russia and Ukraine right now, and he's not like, oh, I wish I could do something, guys. God has a plan. God uses even the most wicked of people as his instruments. Now, whether or not we are used for common purposes, for destructive purposes, or for, glory, or, or for shining God's glory into the world is, 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 is up to the creator and the creation there. But these people, they are used by God as well. God describes them as bitter and hasty. I went over that. The Assyrians um, were very much like them. They would be followed by the Babylonians and the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. This is, they are used as God's rod of discipline for his people. The prophet will ask God, how can he use a nation more wicked than, than they are for this task? The answer is that they are an instrument of God. They're an instrument God uses, but that does not confer on them some privileged status. And that was Israel's big problem. They thought because God chose us, that means we're exempt from all the commands of God. We can live however we want to live, and God is just going to constantly um, turn away. And they found out something very different. And that's why in Hebrews, that's why so much in the New Testament says, look at Israel's history. 
with the covenant they have. If they broke it, they were punished. But look at our covenant, which is much greater. What happens if you break this covenant? So people may think that God winks and nods at their sin. No, he doesn't. It breaks his heart, and he will use his rod of discipline against them as well. But just because God uses you for his purposes does not mean you are righteous. God will judge that nation as well. He doesn't emphasize Babylon's virtues, but their failings. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice comes from, their, from themselves. That is a scary thing when you consider what that means. Because you know what we say in America here is that our justice comes from ourselves. When you try to say, no, our justice comes from the lawgiver, it comes from the Bible. No, we don't want the Bible in any of our courts. Then where does our justice come from? Ourselves. Our justice comes from our way of seeing things. When people talk about their truth, that is what they are saying. They have the heart of the Babylonians, that their justice comes from themselves. So we all talk about our truth, but so did the Babylonians. Where does justice come from then? There are so many different views on justice. Some will use the phrase um, history judges, but so did many people whose ju who history judged them very poorly. But there, is a, but there is a righteous judge of all the universe. In verse 8, God will then go into a poetic way of talking about this nation's violence that is getting ready to be unfurled on the, on the Judeans. He compares their Calvary, and Calvary in the ancient Near East, that's, I mean, that's, that's your F-16s, that's your tanks. It was their powerful weapon of war. Uh, in fact, I, I always love this story. The first chariots were just like a cart and two donkeys, and I was reading, I was reading about uh, when they, when they, when they um, had chariots on the field for the first time, people ran away. I'm like, from donkeys? There's something missing in the translation here. I just don't understand. I mean, were the people like, do I, do I attack the person on there or the donkey? I don't know. I better just get out of here. Donkeys are too much for me. Um, Calvary struck fear into the hearts of people in the ancient Near East because not every army had Calvary. If you didn't have Calvary, you got stomped on. Um, he, compares, he compares the Calvary to um, three predatory animals, to lepers, to wolves, and to eagles. Oh, my. The point is clear. Judah is the prey, and the Babylonians are the predators. In verse 9 is a reference to the total war that will be um, enacted against Judah. Um, they all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. They gather captives like sand. Once again, a reference to what they would do is they taking all of these people, anybody who could do anything back to Babylon. We hear about Daniel, about the three, Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego. That's a great reference to that. In verse 10 is another, another reference to their type of warfare. Um, at kings, they scoff, and at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, um, for they pile up earth and take it. They would make these earthen ramps in order to scale the walls of those great cities. In verse 11, where we end the Lord's response, they sweep by like the wind and go, and go on, guilty men um, whose own might is their God. They sweep by like the wind. This is a reference to the Shiraku winds. Did I say that right? All right. Um, in the ancient Near East, in the desert, you have these fierce out of nowhere, violent winds. They are 
burning hot. It will make the temperature rise 20 to 30 degrees in a moment. And it's already hot there. People feared the Shiraku winds. The Shiraku winds is what's referenced in Jonah. When Jonah, he has that plant that withers and he's in torment. It's the Shiraku winds. He said, they're going to come like that. You know, that's interesting too. They're going to come out of nowhere. All of, a, all of a sudden, you'll think you are safe and then you're not. Very much how like the Lord describes the second coming. People will not know when it's coming. It'll be like a thief. He'll come like a thief in the night. This would be very much in our context. Maybe we would understand this better as a derecho, if we remember that a few years ago. Just blessed not to be in the path of that wind, right? Do we ever fear that our nation is in path of, a vi- of that violent wind? Their strength is their God. The Lord's final description of the Babylonian is that their own strength is their God. This is, this is what made them a perfect whip to use against Israel. And is what will be their eventual downfall. They are very religious. They have the gods of a thousand nations to worship, but their chief supreme deity is themselves. Here is the great idol of all the nations, of all the peoples of all time. This idol is not named Baal, Anubis, or Zeus. This idol appears in many different cultures. This, nation, this idol appears in our own culture. Amongst those who profess to be Christians, this, this idol is spelled M-E, ourselves. And we see that throughout all time, out all history, even in our own nation. It's spelled M-E, and they are in every culture, every time, every person. The Babylonians, like the Assyrians before them, conquered nations who gods couldn't prevent them. The Assyrians, the Assyrians, we see this in stark clarity with the Assyrians. When they come up to Judah, now they were not ordained to conquer Judah. And this is what I love. Until it's your time, you're bulletproof. They come with an army of over 180,000 to attack Jerusalem, the Assyrians do. And they start their propaganda campaign and they tell, they tell the, uh, the king of that time that no other nation's God is prevented, can, can rescue from our hand. And like, you're toast. Your God can't do anything. So the king of that time, he prays to the Lord and he calls him the Lord who's enthroned above the cherubim. Reference to the mercy seat. And in one night, God sends his angel and kills 180,000 of the enemy's soldiers. Unfortunately, this will not be like that time. Judah will be conquered by the Babylonians, not because of the Babylonian strength or because of any other reason than because of their own sin and the judgment has come. But we are not in a time where judgment has yet come. We are in a time of grace. Does this burden you to pray for your unsaved loved ones? Does this burden you to pray for those who hate you and curse your name? Does this burden you to pray for our nation? I talked about David Wilkerson in his his sermon about agony. And there's this part that always strikes me to the core. And he says, where are the Sunday school teachers who are weeping for those they know in their communities who are not coming to church, who are dying and going to hell? I remember hearing that as a youth pastor and getting on my knees and weeping for the kids who are coming to my youth ministry who I knew were not serving the Lord. And I would beg and I would plead upon the mercies of Christ because we're not in a day of judgment yet. We're not in a day of judgment yet. 
We are starting to see judgment in our nation. We are starting to see God giving us over to a reprobate mind, but not the final judgment. So this is a time of grace. This is a time to be praying. So what does this mean for you and for me? Well, in Habakkuk's question, we see that God's children can pray to him without pretext, without flowery, flowery language. They have the privilege to approach the throne of grace with confidence, with honesty, and to speak how we feel. Even if it's born out of frustration and hurt, he knows our weakness, and he's not surprised by it. One thing we should take away from Habakkuk's prayer is how we should be grieved at our nation and those who call themselves part of the Church of Christ when they act in such unworthy ways. David Wilkerson and Leonard Ravenhill both have sermons in which they are literally weeping as they realize the trajectory of Christ's church in America and around the world. They were burdened like Habakkuk was, that the money of the Lord was going to pool tennis courts and entertainment centers while missionaries can't make their budgets and brothers and sisters across the world were starving. We should pray that God would burden us too. People are deconstructing and not making disciples. It's used to be about the message of Jesus Christ, and now it's just about the message. That we dress up in spiritual-sounding language, and we say it's a gospel issue, but it's weird how this gospel issue could be said by somebody on network news without blushing. <coughs> a second, the Lord's reply, it should drive us to pray on our knees for our nation. If you, don't hear about, if you don't hear America in this description of Babylon, then you're not listening close enough. Worship team, would you come up at this time? If I were to summarize what Habakkuk 1, that very first dialogue should produce in us, is a burden to pray. So this challenge I have for you today... In this first two sections, this first dialogue between the prophet and the Lord is prayer. Be burdened in prayer. Travail in prayer. Have patience in prayer. Leonard Ravenhill said, if we had more sleepless nights in prayer, there would be fewer souls to have a sleepless night in eternal, an eternal sleepless night in hell. He also went on to say in his book, Why Revival Tarries. I was reading that book and my wife asked me, so why does revival tarry? I said, because we don't pray. Because we don't pray. God has no interest in answering prayers that are not prayed. No man is greater than his prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is plain. The people who are not praying are strain. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. You know, I read these words from Leonard Ravenhill. It's like, man, you had no idea if you would have lived to this time. Many players, but few prayers. Many singers, but few clingers. Lots of pastors, few wrestlers. Many fears, few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers, few intercessors. Many writers, but few writers. Failing here, we fail everywhere. Faith Church. The faithful who gathered after Easter. Good on you. You know, the, 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 the time in America, the greatest church attendance is Easter Sunday. The least attendance is the Sunday after Easter. So good on you for being here. Very much appreciate it. Be burdened to pray.
pray with me in heart. Day in, day out. We don't need to have a prayer campaign. We don't need to take a week to pray. We just, all of us, continue to be burdened in prayer. To get on our knees and weep for those who are not, don't know Christ. And are going to have an eternal sleepless night in hell. Oftentimes, God will wake me up in the middle of the night. And I know this. I don't know why all the time, because most of the time I'm confused. Or, like, my cat is the one waking me up. But I know this. I'm never wasting time if I, owe, if I, if I get to my knees and pray. I'll waste time if I go into my den and watch something to get myself sleepy. I'll waste my time if I read another chapter in a book. But I never waste my time getting on my knees and praying, even if I'm praying until the sun comes up until I see that his mercies are new every morning. Pray, because failing here, we fail everywhere. If there's one reason why the church in America is failing, it's because prayer is just a passe thing when it should be our passion over all things. Would you please join me as we sing our final song? This is our chance to respond to the message of God today to respond to this dialogue between Habakkuk the prophet and the Lord and to be burdened in prayer. Maybe you may need to make a commitment in your own heart about the time you spend praying. Or maybe it's more about the content of your prayers. See, a person can can pray 24-7 and never say a word that reaches heaven, but one passionate word that says Jesus in our lowest time echoes in eternity. I mean, I've been there where I thought God would hear me from my many words. And I'd be in prayer services and it was almost like a performance. I'd dance around, I'd scream. And nothing really happened. I had a cathartic experience. But there, there, I remember a time when so distressed in spirit and all I could cry out is, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And it echoed in the halls of my Father for eternity. Would you please stand as we sing our final song?